Welcome to episode 367 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Is writing a book in your 2024 plans? I'm building a biz book publishing hub designed to assist entrepreneurs in navigating the complexities of writing, editing, and publishing their books. The hub lists people who provide resources to business authors. I help entrepreneurs launch their books with a plan that builds a pipeline for new revenue based on prospects from their own network and results in 50 plus Amazon reviews. My ideal client has a manuscript that is ready to send to the editor. So I'm lining up resources to help them reach that milestone. If you'd like to discuss your book launch, I'd be happy to schedule a complimentary chat. Fill out the form at robbysamuels.com forward slash book launch support. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash book launch support. And we'll get something on our calendars. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. As I said in the note above, you know, getting a chance to interview people on the show is such an honor and a privilege. And when those guests then make great introductions to other future guests, it just keeps the love train going. So without any further delay, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is on a mission to create better leaders and workplaces, particularly by advancing women and promoting inclusivity. Her journey has taken her through organizations like Coca-Cola, and she made history as the first female CEO at Linkage. With over 25 years of experience in leadership, she has a unique talent for crafting powerful visions and inspiring teams to turn them into reality. She's an accomplished speaker and consultant and the author of In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO. This book uses data and personal stories to shed light on the unique challenges women face on their journey to leadership, providing invaluable insights for aspiring leaders and organizations alike. She's a remarkable leader in the world of leadership, empowerment, and accelerating inclusion in organizations. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer McCollum. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's wonderful to be with you today. So as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? There are so many definitions out there and they vary from person to person. I actually like using uh, the the definition that, that we at Linkage espouse in the world and and just a little a little plug linkage is a 35 year old leadership development company and our mission is to change the face of leadership i have had the privilege of running the company for the last nearly six years of landing it at our new home 
SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management. So our definition of leadership is really around the, the engagement and then the mobilization of others. And very specifically, it is making sure that others are working willingly towards shared goals. So if I can break that down a little bit more, um, what does it take then to engage and mobilize others to work willingly towards shared goals? And this is where I love, it's just such a simple, easy five words. And this is kind of Linkage's model and what we call purposeful leadership. And then inclusion has been integrated into that. So very quickly, it's a leader inspires and helps paint a picture of a future vision. A leader engages so that everyone feels like they have a part to play in that picture of success. Um, an exceptional leader innovates and drives change toward something aspirational as opposed to staying in the status quo. And then the fourth one is achieve. A leader um, mobilizes resources and teams and um, processes not that are dependent on the leader themselves, but it helps the team achieve the, the broader aspiration or vision. And then finally, this is the hardest one. A leader becomes. And the word become for us at Linkage is actually very intentional. Um, become is that courage and that commitment to evolve as a leader every single day. And that's that internal perspective of leadership. I love this. And I love that you've got this like, visualization and if you're painting a picture as you're describing that the engage and mobilize you know because you know one simple definition of, of a leader is you know you have to have followers <laughs> so you have to engage people and then you got to get them moving in a certain direction um but for their betterment to so help them achieve things um i was wondering if, as you were doing this whether there was an acronym to i was like in my head i was trying to i was trying to fit it into an acronym but then you said becomes and i'm like oh that's really good this is an <laughs> acronym <laughs> Well, we have we have a beautiful picture of it where become. Yeah. If you think about a circle, and the become is right mm. in the center of the circle because that's that internal path to leadership. So there's four little circles around uh, the outside, which is the inspire, engage, innovate, and achieve. And that outside circle is really what we can see. We can see what by the leader's actions, by what they say, by what they do. It's much harder that become piece is the internal thoughts, perspectives, maybe biases. Um, that we hold about the world. So it's much harder to measure, but in, in many ways, it's the most important one. Yeah, leading self, it's such an important piece of all of this. So when did you start to realize you had some of these these skills yourself on your, your own upward journey? Yeah, and I'm, I'm always a little careful about um, when did anyone discover that they could be a leader because our hope, and, and this is, a, and I'll tell you a story about myself in a moment, our hope and belief at, at Linkage, and I believe this personally, is that we all have the capacity and capability to lead. The question is, do we believe that ourselves first? And what, where does that awareness, when does that awareness begin? And for me, I've been a very natural, you know, leader who loves the kind of inspiration and mobilization of others, even since you know, I was a kid. I, I, I remember rallying my little brother when, at age seven or eight when my parents agreed to leave us home alone, not sure why. Um, and I convinced them that I could babysit my little brother. And then I rallied him to clean the entire house and to create a theatrical production with a song for when my parents got home. And I look back on those things now and go, that's interesting. Like that, that story kind of can play its way through 
the captain of the high school championship basketball team in Florida in the late 80s. My first real corporate job at Coca-Cola where I was in my 20s and I was engaging and rallying an entire team of full-time and external um, uh, professionals on the Olympic torch relay. And I can play it through every decade. I think the, the as I get older, as we all get older, but as I get more advanced in my leadership and in my career, I think what I realize is that, that, that becoming never ends. So I can look at those five circles that, that we just talked about and, and I can isolate where I've really been good is the inspire piece, um, the innovate piece, the achieve piece, but I had some work to do on that engage piece. And so with that awareness, and that was just kind of five years ago when I took on the CEO job, I think the question becomes not when, when I was aware that I was a leader, but how do I keep evolving as a leader? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought us back to your childhood though, because it's always interesting on these shows, uh, whether sometimes it's a very clear through line, like you're painting a picture where it, it really all maps out. And other times it's like a, a broken journey, but in retrospect, it makes more sense. And sometimes it's a complete 180 from a you know shy childhood to who they are today. Um, but it sounds like your eight year old self was, you know, showing the maturity to say, I can do this. And then, you know, got your brother who was a younger brother by how far? Only uh, 15 months, but he was a very resistant follower. <laughs> yeah. so, so that was your first test was to get him to participate in your in your campaign, whatever you were planning to do at the house and, and have things ready for when they got home. Quite a surprise, I'm sure. Um, what were you like on the playground or hanging out with your friends at school? Like, were you helping <laughs> organize them? Did your teachers see your potential? Um, you know, were you the one raising your hands? Did you run for student body, blah, 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 or, you know? Uh, so yeah, so I, I I kind of follow the traditional, you know, firstborn child, maybe firstborn girl path and stereotype. Like highly responsible, highly perfectionistic, highly motivated to achieve, and, and that was really within me. It wasn't like my parents were beating on me to get straight A's. But as I look back, and I actually write about this in the book, like the the beauty of that, but also the shadow side of that, and this is actually. Mm-hmm particularly true for a lot of women, you know, I, I, I kind of put my head down in every aspect of my, whether it was school or whether it was sports or whether it was community, and I was going to lead and do and show and prove. And, and, and yes, I, I did a lot of those things. And I went to graduate school overseas on a scholarship. I defied my parents when we couldn't afford college and they wanted me to, uh, my father wanted me to go to a, um, a lesser college that was giving me a sports and an academic scholarship. And I had said, absolutely not. I'm going to Wake Forest University and we're going to figure out how to pay for it. So I've always been that very driven and motivated all the way through my childhood. You know, I think it's what now looking back again, it's like, what was the beauty of that? And then what was the downside of that? Because I probably could have done some things differently, but it's only in retrospect that I see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in those moments, you only had so much life experience, but you still had a lot of uh, belief in yourself. I mean, even the college story you're telling where, you know, it wasn't like you wouldn't have gone to college. It's just that the college wouldn't have been your top choice, which happens to a lot of people. Uh, but you still said, nope, we're going to find a way. And, you know, with a will, there was, right? Like you made it happen. Um, having that kind of certainty and sh- assuredness about yourself and your your place in the world at that age I mean, that's kind of remarkable. Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in Germany and my parents were school teachers. And so we lived in a German village. I went to an American school. And as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, your childhood is very foundational about what you can see and what you can aspire to, at least in your early stage. And, and I'll get back to Germany in a second, but why did I go to Wake Forest? Because I lived in Florida. We moved to Florida when I was in middle school. Note to parents out there, try not to move your children when they're going into middle school. It was a very, very difficult time for me. I was five foot nine and had, you know, legs up to five foot six. And I was very awkward and I wasn't very cool because I'd never lived in the United States. And I didn't understand that we were supposed to wear the Izod, you know, the Lacoste shirts and the Jordache jeans. And so it was a very awkward transition. But the reason I went to Wake Forest was because I could only see that I wanted to go to college, but I couldn't fly to college. I could only drive to college. And so I lit, and the reason was because it was embedded in me that we didn't have the money for college. We didn't get on airplanes uh, except to visit my grandparents every other year in Washington state. So my mental model about the world was I can do it, but only if I can drive. Wake Forest was about nine or 10 hours from Florida. And I figured that I could drive that in one sitting alone, but no farther. My brother, by the way, uh, a year behind me, ended up going to Harvard. And he did not have that same preconceived notion that he was, you know, he was tied to that string and the radius of where we could drive. So anyway, back to your question. I grew up in Germany and my parents were wonderful and I was a loving family, but we were limited in our resources. And so I knew that was part of my drive. If I wanted to get it, the Jordache jeans, you know, and starting at age 10 or 11, I was babysitting for a dollar an hour and I had a job from 10 on until I took my first sabbatical at age 48. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Um, you know, also that difference between you and your brother growing up essentially the same household, similar messaging, but the way you internalize that message versus the way he internalized that message. Um, my parents, I lived in Long Island. I grew up in Long Island, New York. And um, my dad sort of drew a circle on a map of, you know, this is the distance that you can go. And it was sort of like four hours from our home. And then he said, and I'm going to pay for four applications for the State University of New York. It's a it's a one payment and you get to apply to four schools. And that's the only application fee I'm, I'm offering. So suddenly the world shrunk to four hours and then it shrunk to within New York State. <laughs> and um, fortunately, I found a great school like right on Long Island, I went to SUNY Starting Book. Um, but that same idea of like, well, if I really wanted X other thing, like, could I have just done that? You know, um, and that that sense of restriction versus my own built-in desire um, it is sort of interesting. And then the pathways that that puts us on, but that didn't slow you down. What when you were twelve or so, Jennifer? Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there like a I mean, your parents were school teachers. Was there a clear path for you about what you should do? So the, there was no clear path. And I actually didn't know what I wanted to do even when I went to college. And I guess the beauty of a, I had a liberal arts education was I, was I was doing a lot of exploring. But here's what my parents did do that I, you know, I've tried to do with my own kids. There was never any limitation on what I could be or what I could achieve or what I could aspire to. There was just a real limitation on the financial resources they had to help me. Mm -hmm. So once I decided that I was going that nine, 10 hour drive to Wake Forest, 
I was started to be exposed to a lot of new experiences that I never had the opportunity to be exposed to in my middle school and high school years. Things like living overseas where I went to, you know, I went to Spain and studied and then I did my master's degree in Scotland. But back to this drive and ambition, I knew I wanted a master's degree because I wasn't quite sure. I was a psychology communications double major. I was either going to be a a psychologist or a TV news broadcaster. I mean, my aspiration then, my 21-year-old self, was to be the the uh, the new the anchor on the Today Show. Right? And so I pursued both of those paths, and then realized after many internships, and this is the beauty of kind of trial, of like testing and learning. You know, I went overseas and realized I I loved like going back to that international roots, and I wanted to work overseas. I went to Scotland. And that's what opened my eyes to, you know, the Coca-Cola and the Olympics in Barcelona at the time. And how could I start to parlay my Spanish language skills with my master's degree, with my aspiration then to go work for Coca-Cola? Because by that time at age 22, I was starting to hone into at least what I thought I wanted to do. Now, by the way, I've kind of reinvented my career two or three times. And I think that's pretty normal for, for people now. It's probably more like, you know, 20 times. But my aspiration at 22 was I'm getting to Atlanta and I'm working for the Coca-Cola company. I just want to remark on the fact that, you know, at age 17, 18, heading into college, your your sort of limitation was a, was seven, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours. Like it was a real, it was a drive. And then you end up uh, going abroad it's for one of your semesters. And then you go to Scotland for your master's degree. And what a big change that is that you sort of felt less anchored. Maybe maybe the anchor felt stronger, but you had more leeway from the anchor. I don't know, but like that idea that you allowed yourself to dream to go that far away to grad school. Was it a very specific school that you were applying for? And like, was there a reason that you had to go there? Like, what was the impetus? Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of gets back to my my childhood of like always having my parents' support, just not necessarily the resources. So that knowledge that if I want something, I have the freedom to go get it. I just have to figure out how to do it. So there I was at 22. At the time, all of my college friends were either going to Anderson Consulting or Deloitte, like tax, something or other. And like both of those things were going to be soul-sucking for me. I didn't want to go straight to graduate school in psychology. And yet I wanted to get some, some more time and experience to figure out what I wanted to do. So I pursued a Rotary scholarship because, again, I didn't have any money. Uh, I pursued a Rotary scholarship where I was fully funded for my graduate school for one year. And, and I found a one-year master's program. I chose five countries or uh, five programs in three countries. And Rotary actually sent me to Scotland. I had to be willing to go as a global ambassador. And for me, it was less about the degree and more about the experience and the time and the exploration to continue to figure out what I wanted to do, at least initially in my 20s. It's such an incredible opportunity, but you really also made that opportunity possible. I mean, you you applied, you followed up, you, you, know, you did all the things to make that door open for you and stay open for you. So now you're in your 20s, you've got this degree, and you have a, your sights set on Coca-Cola. At the time, that is a hot commodity. <laughs> How do you get known? Like, who, who helps you get seen by the people who would eventually bring you into Coca-Cola. Oh, this is such a good transition to the whole networking topic if you want to if you want to go there, but I was literally 
sitting in a snowstorm in Scotland and I'm 22 years old and I have to write a master's thesis. And I know the Olympics are happening and Coca-Cola is a sponsor. And um, if I could just get there, I knew I could meet the right people. So, so I concocted a plan that I was going to do my master's research on the ROI of Olympic sponsorships from a public relations perspective. That was what my, my degree ended up being. So it's kind of the other side of the news media. And uh, I, you know, there was no internet at the time. So I like, you know, in a payphone, I was, I was, I was trying to like write letters and call my friends back in Atlanta to say like, you have to find me who I need to talk to at Coca-Cola. So they helped me find Frank Dean. The story is actually in the book. It's a very funny story. Uh, Frank Dean, who was the head of global sponsorships at the Coca-Cola company. So in the middle of a snowstorm in Scotland, remember it's like five hours later. So it's maybe nine or 10 o'clock at night. I go with a pile of, you know, great British pounds to a payphone outside of my chalet that I lived, and I called Frank Dean. And by some miracle, because it was the end of day there, uh, or end of day for me, maybe five o'clock at night there, he picked up the phone. Where I hadn't fully prepared my soliloquy, but I started kind of babbling about speaking Spanish, doing research, operating as a public relations intern, and there was this really long pause, (laughs) and he said, now, who is this again? <laughs> and so that opening of the door to, to Frank, you know, I intrigued him enough where, you know, I sent him my resume and it kind of bounced around into the public relations department at Coca-Cola. And look, it was super cheap for them to pay me a thousand dollars or something to show up at the Olympics. But I operated as a translator. I was able to meet all of the executives that I needed for my master's research. And then through that network, um, my heart was broken a little when they said, we actually don't ever hire people right out of college or, or even master, your master's degree, but hey, we are going to open the door to our public relations agency in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I literally had to like open a map and, and try and figure out where Minnesota was coming from Florida. And um, they said, you know, we'll open the door there. And if you want to walk through it and work at an agency for a couple years, maybe you can find your way back. So let me pause there and then I'll tell you the next part of the story if you want. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's some good gold here. <laughs> I'm just picturing, I mean, first of all, again, pre-internet, pre-LinkedIn, able to quickly find the name of the person who's the global head of sponsorship, right? Like, you know, and like what kind of network your friends had, the fact that you had friends in Atlanta, the fact that they had any idea how to help you, right? There's like so many leaps of logic that have to be met for you to even get that person's name. And then you have to get their contact info. Again, not a quick Google search. Um, and then here you are sitting at a payphone with a pile of money. I'm just like picturing <laughs> the scene. Um, not sure even that they're gonna pick up and therefore not fully prepared what to say. But you left a really positive impression because you did a thing at the time was very difficult and most people would never have tried nor would they have succeeded. So you made an, a strong impression and yes, you you got your way to um, the Olympics. I think that also here is you were you had a lot of skill sets, and you were willing to let them know all of them. Like the Spanish interpretation piece, it's sort of like it feels like an adjacent part of the story. Yet it makes again you stand out. It, it's a differential from someone else who might be looking for a way to to get this opportunity. In retrospect, I mean this is a funny part of the story, and then I, I'd like to pull a couple lessons from it that that I've used in my whole life. But the funniest part of the story is. When I got to Barcelona, what I realized is 
there was not one person at Coca-Cola that spoke Spanish, right? So I became this very key asset because they couldn't even find a dry cleaner without me, right? So, um, so I was running around uh, a hot commodity because of my Spanish skills. What I thought they were going to be falling over themselves uh, you know, over was my research on the ROI of sponsorship. Turns out they didn't care about that at all. They, you know, they, I gave them my, a big black book of the, of the research and I'm sure it's, you know, it was uh, recycled shortly thereafter, but it gave me a couple things. It gave me a unique, you know, what is a unique skill set that I bring? Um, and it gave me access to a network that Robbie, I swear to you, I have used, I used that Coca-Cola network for the next 20 years. Yeah. Coca-Cola became a long-term client even after I had left the company. So that story, and it weaves its way throughout the book because I think there's a couple lessons if, if you want, don't mind. One is that setting intention. Why Atlanta? I had a boyfriend in Atlanta. And a bunch of my college friends ended up in either Atlanta or Charlotte from Wake Forest, right? So Atlanta was, again, as I knew I wasn't going back to Florida, but I couldn't see myself in Minneapolis, right? So I had my heart set. I will work for Coca-Cola in Atlanta. And so then the question became, when you set the intention, and this is, this is clarity, and for women especially, this is one of the largest hurdles that we face as women, is getting really clear and being able to articulate and paint a picture to others about what it is that you want. And that is the superpower I have. I've always been able, whether it's for the business or for my life, seen a picture at some point in time in the future that I want to go after. So for me at that time, it was, I will be in Atlanta working for Coca-Cola. Then once you have the clarity and you're sharing it, the universe conspires to help you get it. That's why Frank answered the phone. I couldn't have masterminded that, right? That's why Coca-Cola opened the door at the agency knowing that I may find my way back, but I may not. So what did I do? When I got to Minneapolis, I wrote Carlton Curtis every single month. Again, no internet. I was typing letters, printing them, putting stamps on them every single month. The next Olympics was in Oslo, Norway, the Winter Olympics. You know, I had this wonderful full-time job. I would still like to consider, could I help you for the Oslo Olympics? Carlton writes back, you're getting great experience, like keep it up. I write back, the Atlanta Olympics is coming up in 96. I'm now living in South America, Santiago, Chile, because now I'm on my second job, disconnected from Coca-Cola. But I'm still interested in finding my way back. Every single month for two years, I wrote and stayed connected with Coca-Cola. And then when I was sitting in Santiago, Chile, I got a call. It was in 1995 and they said, we're ready for you. Do you want to be the public relations manager for the Olympic torch relay for the Coca-Cola company? And that was it. I moved straight to Atlanta. I have goosebumps. Like I really do. Um, that perseverance on your part that, you know, just keep showing up. I have a moment in my life where I kept running into um, this person who had a kind of uh, this role at an organization that I really wanted to work for. And I wanted, I wanted to get in. It was, I was in my twenties and I kept, we kept crossing paths. I made business cards out of construction paper. This is the nineties. <laughs> Um, and I printed them on my dot matrix, <laughs> uh, and hand cut them. <laughs> and, uh, she eventually, she got moved up to a national role, uh, for a national campaign and the state role was left vacant and they didn't really have funding. And I was a grad student looking for an internship and she just had a pile of my business cards. <laughs> and so I got the call. Um, but it's it's like that. Like I just kept being like, yes, what I, I don't I don't even know what opportunities were there yet. 
and then the opportunity was there, right? But like, uh, I think so serendipity is more likely to happen when you know what you want. And so you were so clear on that intention, that clarity, and then you just make yourself visible in the world and then things will happen, good things will happen. It's a, definitely a philosophy to, li to live by. Your, um, your desire to like stick with this one company um, while you were moving around the world, literally in Minneapolis to South America, um, why why was it still so important to you to go back to Atlanta? You, you, you clearly two years in, were making different connections in the world. You were not tied to your grad school friends as much as you had been. Why was this still such a focal point for you? So the, the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona was was so overwhelmingly positive for me in many ways. I, I write in the book about some less positive things operating as a woman leader, but I won't go into that right now, that I could see myself you know, as a full-time employee at Coca-Cola, working the Olympics, and leveraging the skills that, at least in my first round of my career, which lasted kind of through my 20s, that I thought I wanted to deploy. I mean, what better than to work on worldwide sports, the World Cup and the Olympics, than for the Coca-Cola company? So I kind of had held that vision. When I got the phone call to go to South America, and it was a marketing communications agency based in Portland, Maine. So that's another part of the story. I moved from Minneapolis to Maine and then lived 50% of the time in Santiago, Chile. So I was going back and forth for a year. That was, um, it, it, wasn't, I, it wasn't like I set the intention to live in Santiago, but when a headhunter called, and again, I was not making a lot of money, but a headhunter called and said, would you be willing to live in Santiago and Portland, Maine? I was intrigued enough to say, yes, why? I loved using my Spanish language skills. I loved traveling. It was the Foreign Affairs Ministry of Chile. I was radically underqualified for the job, but there were very few people that had the bilingual skills and the willingness to move back and forth and just kind of make it up as I, as I went along. And I found myself, again, back to the network, I found myself in Santiago, Chile, working with the top members of the government, the top um, the professionals in the corporate sector, the top journalists, uh, because we were promoting trade and investment and travel between um, the United States and Chile at the time, it was the NAFTA agreement extension. And again, in my 20s, I was working really hard, but I was leveraging all of these skill sets. I probably would be living in Santiago today had Coca-Cola not called. But then it was that, oh, right, this regrounding, that was my vision. And they're asking me to work the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta, I'm out. And so I went right away um, because I was still grounded in that vision. Now later, my vision evolved and I was no longer interested in public relations at the Coca-Cola company or anywhere else, but Coca-Cola became the springboard to Everything. really the rest of my career. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, that piece about you being underqualified but willing, um, that's also really interesting from a perspective of women in leadership, because women talk themselves out of those kinds of opportunities, like eight qualifications. Oh, I'm missing two of them. I probably shouldn't apply. Guy looks at that resume. Yeah, I've got two or three. I could figure out the rest, right? It's like a different way of being brought up in the world. But you, you were also had the, you know, it wasn't a cushy job. It was a difficult job and it required a lot of travel and, you know, people with families, right? Like, probably would not have been as happy to do all that running around. So it's it's good when you're getting started in your career to have a job like that. 
Um, it sounds it like is. But, but I, I mean, excuse the interruption. I think that the the more important piece of that is it required courage. Yeah. And whether it was the courage to go to the phone booth and make the phone call in the middle of a snowstorm, or the courage to say, yes, I'm going to move to Santiago, Chile, because the worst case scenario is I move back, right? It's And then and two things that you mentioned, I just want to hone in on. The inner critic, which is the foundational Uber hurdle that we talk about, that I talk about in my book, is the one that amplifies all of the other hurdles. And it's that voice in our head that says, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worth it, or I shouldn't go for that job or that promotion or the bonus or the title. Um, I'm not ready. And that inner critic surges for all of us. It's louder for women, and it prevents women from taking action. So my ability to overcome that inner critic and say, no, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to go um, is one piece. The other piece that you mentioned is the making the ask piece. And this is also aligned to courage. Women, this is the third largest hurdle. Um, the first being proving your value, which we can talk about later if you want. The second being clarity, which we've also talked about already. And the third being making the ask. It's women being willing to make the ask, you know, like for example, when I when I got the uh, offer to come back to to Coca Cola, it's will you pay for my, you know, will you pay for my move? Um, will you put me in a managerial role? Will you put me on the Olympic? You know, so it was I was young and naive, but I was wise enough to know to start making the ask, and that's all acts of of bravery and courage as well. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. At what point did you shift gears? Um, you said you moved away from public relations. What were you moving towards? What was the the new horizon for you? And this is the clarity piece. And 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 for all of us, the clarity of vision. And by vision, I mean what do we want most? What do we want to draw into our lives? Aligned to our purpose, um, aligned to what that picture of success looks like. It could be family, it can be relationships, it can be community. A lot of the work we do at Linkage is around career and professional aspirations. And something interesting started happening around five years in to Coca-Cola. I'd spent the first three or so years traveling around the world, working on Olympic Games after Olympic Games after World Cup. It was incredible. And then I spent the next couple of years working on, I had the I had the Europe desk job. So it was corporate in Atlanta, but I was supporting public affairs and communications of anything happening in Europe. And there was a big crisis that happened in 1999 in Europe for Coca-Cola. It's not, not the, the details aren't important. But they had to move all of the Coca-Cola products off the shelves because there was perceived, not real, this perceived danger to children for drinking Coca-Cola. So it's a great business case study, but you can look it up. The 1999 Belgian crisis. As I was sitting for months on end in Belgium, watching one executive after another, and again, I was behind the scenes, right? My job was to write the media relations strategy, figure out the talking points, prop up the executives as they were trying to face this like horrific crisis in the news media. All I kept thinking was, gosh, I wish I could be in front of the camera. I wish I could be the leader as opposed to the supporter. I wish I could figure out how, if all of us could work together more effectively, the one plus one would equal three and we'd have much better outcomes. And so I, I just this like started bubbling inside of me that much like I didn't like the news media when I was doing the internships uh, in college, I actually didn't like the other side that much either. I was good at it and I was you know, in one of the top jobs that I probably would ever aspire to. 
but it wasn't satisfying me anymore. And at the same time, I didn't know what I wanted. I actually applied for a graduate MBA program and got in. And Coca-Cola was supportive. But I looked at the syllabus, my heart sank. I didn't want the accounting and the finance and the stats and the, I didn't want that, but I didn't know what I did want, what I did want. So slowly over time, and this is again, Coca-Cola, they were, what was emerging there was a program called the, the Global Learning Consortium. And they were bringing people in-house and developing people internally to help the organization become a true learning organization. And it was around, you know, it, it was around personal visioning and mastery and team effectiveness and mental models and executive level coaching. And, and I, was, I got exposed to it and I was totally hooked. I just didn't know the path. Like that was the vision. I want to do that. I want to be in the leadership space. I want to help individuals and teams and organizations achieve wildly ambitious goals more effectively than they could maybe without my support. And Coca-Cola helped me you know, over the course of about 15 months. They trained me to do the work. And then the best part happened, which I'll tell you after I pause. <laughs> <laughs> I love your storytelling um, and your, your willingness to take pauses. <laughs> you're, a good co you're a good guest. Um, so this is really interesting because some people would be behind the scenes of that crisis and think, I'm so glad I'm not in front of the camera. I'm so glad I'm not in charge. Boy, is this a big headache. And you're like, oh, gosh, I could really have an impact here. Like, how do I how do I get to that place where I could make one plus one equal three and help more people? And you didn't know the gap that you had. You just knew that there was a gap between where you were and where you wanted to be. And that got you curious and open. Um, I'm glad you didn't just fall into the MBA out of rote kind of that's the next thing you do. You looked critically at that as well. And then that left you open to taking on, because if you'd been in the MBA program, you probably would have missed this other program because you can't do everything. Um, you got the opportunity to do this global learning consortium in order to really advance. And those topics lit you up and exposed you to new pathways, new possibilities. And, you know, it's not everyone's calling. It, you know, it's a difficult role. It's not everyone's calling. And you got the foundation to sort of explore it in a, in a different way. A lot of people end up in leadership sort of accidentally. Um, they just stay in a role long enough and eventually they get, you know, moved up without the training, without the support, without the coaching. And for you, you sought this out, which is a very unique thing in my mind because you came to these new roles, kind of eyes open, probably surprised by a zillion things you couldn't see until you were in the role, but you were more prepared than I think a lot of people going into that. Um, what has surprised you most as you got into these leadership roles, as you had the opportunities that your younger self, you were seeking out, like what, what was the surprise to you as you settled into those roles? So the, my, I think my biggest surprise, and this, this actually started in my 20s at Coca-Cola, was that and this, is, this kind of goes back to the engage piece. Uh, of how do you engage and mobilize followers to want to come with you? Because I'd always been so fiercely independent and so driven and so motivated that, you know, when I didn't have teams, I could just kind of roll up my sleeves and muscle through um, and achieve mostly what I wanted. Uh, once you start to manage teams, you realize that you don't have ultimate control over what they what they do, and you've got to engage them to come along with you. So I had a, I think one of my biggest surprises was, um, and this is this has been. A, kind of a continual evolution of my own leadership is that 
I have to be fully aware um, of the unique superpowers and strengths of every individual on the team and not expect them always to meet me where I am. You know, so I've gotten plenty of feedback uh, in my life that, you know, Jennifer, you can see a vision faster than a lot of people. And therefore, you're already down the road. And we not only can't keep up, but we don't know how to engage with you in terms of like followership or supporting. Um, and so I've had to, and, and there's a great story in the book um, in, in my, my 20s about how, you know, I wanted something. It was at the Olympics in Nagano for my team that I was running. And it was really at the expense of another team. And all right, just as, without going into too much detail, I was kind of forcing my agenda over, you know, collaborating with another leader who was a peer of mine. And it took a, a very, uh, Mary Buten is her name, and she had been in my role previously. And she kind of whispered in my ear in Nagano, you know, are you being the type of leader you want to be? And what is the kind of the collateral damage of this relationship with Klaus, as Klaus in camp was his name, he's, he's no longer with us. What is the, you know, what is the impact? Because we're going to go to other Olympics and we're going to go to other, you know, worldwide sports you know, events where you need him. And so that kind of whispering in my ear and my willingness to go, oh, yes, I actually need to apologize to Klaus. So my, my you know, it's not me over him. Like, how do we come to a, you know, a collective leadership, what's in the best interest of the business, but also how do I ensure that I engage the team so that they feel like they're, they can stay with me and that they feel like they can operate at their highest as well. And, and frankly, that's been a stretch for me. You know, we all have our opportunities, right? That's probably been my biggest opportunity as a leader. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, that's when, when you are sort of in charge of everything, it's really your perseverance and your fortitude and your do you, you know, stick to itness when you expand and you now have a team delivering and your your lane is no longer in the delivery, your lane is in the strategy, the visioning, the the cheerleading. Um, it really changes things because you you can't you, you know, you ha- can't get your arms around everything. You have to really, really the, you'll actually get better outcomes by giving other people that leadership ability and giving them the chance to step forward. New outcomes will come from that, new possibilities. That's a very difficult transition. I'm curious what led to linkage because um, this is a, it, was that kind of a clear path into linkage for you? Was it like a looking back, like, of course this happened or did it seem a little more like you had to, you had to make leaps to get to this place? I, I think life always looks clear in retrospect where you can connect all the dots. Right. So I can do that, but I, I, at Coca-Cola, could I have seen linkage? No, but here's what happened. Uh, I, I left Coca-Cola um, in 2000. It was the internet boom and, uh, and then bust, the dot-com bubble. But I left because they took the, the learning consortium and kind of blew it up and outsourced it when a new CEO came in. And I knew that was the work I wanted to do in the world. I just wasn't sure of the bridge to get there. So somewhat reactively, I, I took a risk and went to an internet company where I was still the director of communications, but knew that I could build a team and I was on the executive team. I mean, as much as you can be in a startup. And I knew I could have the impact that I wanted to have. But within a year, I was super clear that the communications role was now in the past because I was so clear about what I wanted. So I took the leap to start my own business and I spent eight years as an entrepreneur. But why did I feel comfortable doing that? One, 
the year-long bridge from large corporate, again, I, was, you know, I wasn't even 30 yet, from large corporate to startup helped me see what entrepreneurialism looks like. And I remember saying, thinking to myself, well, the guys that founded this company are no smarter or better than I am. That will give me the courage to start my own. So that spurred eight years of a consulting firm that I ran as a solopreneur, but subcontracted with other, with other groups um, back and forth for a beautiful eight years. But why did I do that? Because Coca-Cola, who now no longer had those resources internally, still needed the work done. And they said, we will guarantee that we'll be your first client and we will keep you as busy as you, well, they didn't say this, but, but in retrospect, I was making three times more than I was when I was full time. And I was traveling around the world designing and delivering and facilitating incredible. I was executive coaching and facilitating teams and driving business strategy um, facilitation and helping teams become what their aspirations were. And I loved it, loved it. So eight years in, it's now 2008 and we all know what happened in 2008. So I am on maternity leave with my third child and I'm looking at the economy crumbling around me. And I looked at my husband and I said, things are not going to bode well for Intravision was the name of the company as I come off a of maternity leave, because even the contracts I had were starting to, you know, un unwind. It might be the time for me to go back into the corporate world. And so um, I'll get to the linkage question quickly now. I ended up back at a company called CEB. It was acquired by Gartner, where I then started managing bigger and bigger teams then teams of teams. I learned how to run a PL inside that company. And that was my MBA. That was the executive MBA that I had aspired to get at Coca-Cola so long ago. And thank God I didn't, because now I was in, I was running leadership businesses now. So from there I went to Corn Ferry. And from Corn Ferry, I went to Linkage. And then I've been on a path really for the last 15 years from entrepreneur to business builder, business leader of much larger teams and businesses. It's really interesting to hear about your history as an entrepreneur in the middle of this career path because it, there, there's a skill set you get being the entrepreneur that you don't get when you stay in a linear career path in the company, in a corporate environment that you now bring into a company. Like now the, the whole idea of an entrepreneur within a company, like you have that mindset. Um, you also like have had to do everything so now it's a question of how to, oh, there are people to deputize, there are people to, to invite, to take on roles. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an unraveling of the, I have everything on my plate. Now I'm, I'm passing it on to other people. So it's another learning curve, but you had that experience prior. So it's just very interesting how you can take all these sort of skill sets and proficiencies and keep reshaping them for different experiences that you've had in your life. Um, what led to the desire to write a book. It's not an easy endeavor, as you now know. Um, you had a message. What was the inspiration behind writing this book? And what, what is it you want people to know about it? So first of all, to answer your question, why write a book? It's so fascinating. The book is that dedicated to my father, actually, because 20 years ago, you know, I'd, again, I'd, I'd had all these interesting global experiences and Coca-Cola and whatnot. And my dad said, you know, why aren't you writing a book and speaking about your life experiences? I mean, it's so interesting. And my response to him at the time was, 
well, my life may look interesting to you, Dad, but there are a lot of people who have interesting lives. They don't necessarily need to write a book about them. And, and who would read an autobiography of me? I'm not, you know, no, I'm not Viola Davis or Prince Harry or Elon Musk. And so, so, but I kind of held that. If I look back at my visioning statements and documents back to, you know, 15 years ago, writing a book and speaking on stages has always been there. And in the last 15 years, I've been on plenty of stages talking about, you know, our companies, the last three companies, you know, intellectual property and insights, but mostly it's been in less of a keynoting and more of kind of a business development um, or client scenario. So fast forward to Linkage. And what I love about Linkage is that we have in the advancing women leaders space, we have 25 years of history of data and research and insight on what is not only on women, we have it on leadership as well, but what is uniquely challenging for women and we've got all this gender data and then and then how do you help them overcome those challenges and so that's a big it's, it's a significant chunk of our business at linkage and i went to the executive team my executive team about 18 months ago and i said listen we're seeing it in our data we haven't published a book in five years this is thought leadership that needs to be in the world what has changed in this post-covid environment for women as leaders. Why are these hurdles unique to women? And if they've changed, how have they changed? And most importantly, how do we help them overcome them? So even if these women aren't able to come to our conference or hire us as coaches or you know, come, come through our assessments and our leadership development, because we're largely a B2B business, how can we expose more leaders to our work? And so the executive team said, you know, listen, Jennifer, we're we're managing our company, we're selling our company, and now you want to write a book? <laughs> and I said, listen, I won't do it without you. I will write it and I will own it. But now I see we've got a story to tell, we've got a framework and insight and data and perspectives, but now my stories have much more meaning because they're hanging on the framework that Linkage brings. So we have a story to tell, the world needs to hear it. I will do the majority of the work, but I don't want to do it without your support. And so that's the last 18 months has been this labor of, of love with the launch of the book. That's really incredible that you uh, committed to this in the middle of everything else that you all were doing. Um, Cause you know, it's, it's a job uh, on its own just to get the words out of your head and onto paper and then shaped into something that other people can so readily receive. We will make sure there's a link in the show notes at onthechmoose.com uh, to your book and all your resources. We're about to get to my favorite wrap up question before we do a quick word from our sponsor. All right, favorite wrap-up question. Uh, I hope we stay in touch. You're fascinating. Um, a year from now, we cross paths and I'm asking you what you've been up to in the past year. I wanna know what am I gonna be helping you celebrate a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in this next 12 months? Oh, this is such a perfect timing for this question because we are kind of landing the plane on the integration of linkage. And so we're looking, I personally am looking to what is next? And whether I stay inside of SHRM or go outside of SHRM, I will be a business leader in a significant business that is still leveraging the education and training space, the technology um, that drives that. But I also will be on many more stages talking about the principles of the book to support the acceleration of gender equity in the world and how all of us as leaders, the entire spectrum of gender, uh, can support women in doing that. And I will be on one or two uh, private or public boards. 
Amazing. I can't wait to help you celebrate all of that. And they'll be so lucky to have you on those boards, the, the experience and enthusiasm that you bring. And also just your just like welcoming attitude. I just feel like you you generate a really good energy as you bring people into the projects. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, attracting and, and building momentum and energizing people towards something. I clearly you've taken on that piece of the puzzle that you weren't so sure about. I can see it in the work you do today. How can people find you and follow your work? Please follow me on LinkedIn. It's uh, Jennifer Shear McCullum and um, connect with me. I'm really good at LinkedIn. If you want to learn more about uh, what we do more broadly at Linkage, and, and obviously the book is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere else you want to find it. But if you want to learn more broadly, you can go to shermshrm.org backslash in her own voice. And that has a lot more information. I would love to connect with, with your listeners, Robbie. Brilliant. I will put all those links in the show notes at onthischmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jennifer. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at onthischmooze.com. Look for episode 367. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.